Part One, Chapter Eight of Recollections of the Revolution and the Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Seventeen eighty-eight to seventeen eighty-nine. Eve of the Revolution. My aunt, Madame Denis, received us at her house in the Rue Verneuil, and gave me quarters on the ground floor, looking out on a very dismal little garden. As we did not wish to be an expense to her. Our cook prepared our servants' meals, and also our own when my aunt dined out or had company for dinner. My maid Marguerite, who had never left me, refused all the offers and even prayers of my grandmother in order to accompany me. The summer of 1788 we passed at Passy, in a house which Madame Denis had leased, together with Madame de Poix, de Bouillon and de Biron. My aunt and I lived there all the time, while these ladies came there in turn. Monsieur de la Tour du Pin had been appointed colonel of the regiment of Royal Besson. This body of troops was in a state of great indiscipline, not by the conduct of the soldiers and the under-officers, which was excellent, but by the attitude of the officers, who had been spoiled by their former colonel, Monsieur Dossin, husband of the Queen's Dame d'Atour. When my husband, who was very severe in the matter of discipline, arrived at his regiment, he found that these gentlemen were not attending to their duties. Having ascertained that during the daily drills the regiment was commanded by the under-officers and the lieutenant-colonel, Monsieur de Kegaradec, Monsieur de la Tour du Pain declared that, as he expected to be present at the drills every morning at sunrise, he should require that the officers also be present. This order raised a perfect storm of discontent, and punishments, arrests, prison. No measures could determine the officers to fulfil their duties. In this way, the summer passed. In the autumn, a camp for manoeuvres was to be formed at Saint-Omer under the command of the Prince de Condé. The first manoeuvre, which should have been executed in a model manner, was very unsatisfactory, and Monsieur de la Tour du Pain was furious. He reported to the Prince regarding the bad spirit of the regiment, or rather that of the officers. The Prince declared that if at the next manoeuvre the officers did not do better, he would put them all under arrest for the duration of the camp, and that the companies would be commanded by the under-officers. This order had the desired effect, and there was no further insubordination. While these events were happening at Saint-Omer, I was living very pleasantly at Passy with my aunt and one or two of her friends. I often visited Paris, and also passed some time at Berny with Madame de Montesson, who was always full of kindness for me. Here I met very frequently old Prince Henry of Prussia, brother of the great Frederick. He was a man of much capacity, both military and literary, and a great admirer of all the philosophers whom his brother had attracted to his court, and particularly of Voltaire. He knew our literature better than any Frenchman. As I am not writing a history of the Revolution, I shall not speak of all the conversations, arguments and disputes that the difference of opinions occasioned in society. For my eighteen years these discourses were very boring and I endeavoured to divert myself by visiting as often as possible 
a charming house where I was attached by ties of friendship since the period of my youth, and especially from the day that I had been obliged to leave my relatives. The Hôtel de Rochois was one of those patriarchal mansions which will never be seen again, and where several generations mingled, sans gêne, sans ennui, sans exigence. Madame de Courtaille, a very rich widow, had married her only daughter to the Comte de Rochois. She lived with her son-in-law and their two daughters in a large and beautiful mansion in the Rue de Grenelle. Madame de Rochois had been an intimate friend of my mother's, and I had passed my childhood with her two daughters, who were from two to four years older than myself. The elder had married, at the age of fifteen, the Duc de Pienne, since Duc d'Aumont. She was an amiable girl with an agreeable face, without being precisely pretty. Her husband, according to the usage in high society at that time, was the avowed and declared lover of Madame de Rueil, which made his wife very unhappy. I was more intimate, however, with Rosalie, the younger sister. She had been married at the age of twelve years and one day with the grandson of the Maréchal de Richelieu, the Comte de Chinon. It was then only fifteen years of age. At this time she was still a nice little girl, but thin and very delicate, while he was a disagreeable boy whom in our children's parties we could not endure. This marriage was celebrated before the death of my mother, and I was present. Immediately after the dinner, which was given at the Hôtel de Richelieu, the bridegroom set out with his tutor for a European tour. Leaving thus at the beginning of the year 1782, he did not return to France until about seven years later. He had then become a large and fine young man, and an excellent fellow. At the Hôtel de Rochois, everyone was delighted at his return, except his poor wife, who was far from participating in this joy. In completing her growth, she had become, at the age of fourteen, a complete hunchback, and she was afraid that her husband would detest her on account of this deformity. To add to the misfortunes of this poor man, he found upon his return two sisters born of a second marriage of his father, who were deformed in the same manner as his wife. These three hunchbacks gave him a feeling of horror for his native country. At the first indications of the coming revolution, he emigrated and went to Russia, where he gained much glory in the war between the Russians and the Turks, during the course of which he served as a volunteer in the army of Catherine II with Messieurs de Damas and de Langeron. Returning to France under the consulate, he left almost immediately for Russia, whence he did not return until after the restoration. I think that it was during the spring of the year 1789 that the Duke of Dorset, the English ambassador who had just been replaced by Lord Gower, and his charming wife, Lady Sutherland, gave a fine ball on the eve of his leaving Paris. At the bottom of the invitations he had placed very cavalierly, Les dames seront en blanc. This order displeased me. By way of protest, I ordered a charming robe of blue crepe, trimmed with flowers of the same colour. My gloves and my fan were also adorned with blue ribbons. In my coiffure, arranged by Léonard, were blue feathers. This piece of 
childish folly had a great success. Everybody kept remarking, was a bleu, couleur du temps. The Duke of Dorset himself was amused at this pleasantry, and said that the Irish were pig-headed. In the midst of our pleasures, we approached the month of May, 1789. Now that a long life permits me to pass and review the events which I saw unroll before me, I am confounded by the profound blindness of the unfortunate king and of his ministers. Everyone insisted upon the necessity of modelling the new constitution of France upon that of England, which few persons understood. Monsieur de Lally, afterwards the Marquis de Lally Tollendal, in spite of his pretensions fully to understand the English constitution, was himself ignorant of its details, although he passed for an oracle. The force of his speech filled with delight the ladies who listened to him. He had turned the head of my aunt, who had no doubt of his success in the States-General. Monsieur de Lally had just been elected deputy to the Assembly by the nobility of Paris. I was present at one of the first meetings of this Assembly. With twenty or thirty ladies, I was concealed behind the curtains of the tribunes which had been arranged in the windows of the hall. The first two names taken from the election urn of persons nominated for secretaries of the Assembly were those of Monsieur Lally and Monsieur Despremeny, the President of the Parliament of Paris. Now it so happened that Monsieur Despremeny was the person who had made the report upon the sad affair which had sent General de Lally to the scaffold in 1766. Before the different courts where Monsieur Lally, his son, had pleaded for the rehabilitation of the memory of his father, Monsieur Despremeny had pleaded on the other side, and in such a furious manner that a profound hatred had arisen between the two men. Therefore, when these two were proclaimed as the secretaries of the assembly, and they left their places at the end of the hall to seat themselves side by side at the desk, there was heard a murmur of very marked interest in favour of Monsieur de Lally. When a few moments later he addressed a few brief words to the assembly to thank them for his nomination, and stated that all private misunderstandings should disappear before the public interest, everyone present enthusiastically applauded him. At the beginning of the spring of 1789, which followed a terrible winter, that had been very hard upon the poor, the Duc d'Orléans Egalité was very popular in Paris. He had sold the previous year a large part of the pictures of the splendid gallery of his palace, and it was generally stated that the eight million francs received from this sale had been devoted to relieving the misery of the people during the rigorous winter which had just ended. On the other hand, nothing was said rightly or wrongly of the charities of the princes of the royal family and of the king and queen. This unfortunate princess had become entirely devoted to the Polignac family. She no longer went to the theatre in Paris, and no one ever saw her or her children. The king also never appeared in public, shut up at Versailles or hunting in the surrounding woods. He suspected nothing, foresaw nothing, believed nothing. 
The Queen detested the Duc d'Orléans, who had spoken harshly of her. He had wished to marry his son, the Duc de Chartres, afterwards King Louis-Philippe, with Madame Royale, the daughter of the King. But the Comte d'Artois, afterwards Charles X, also desired the hand of this princess for his son, the Duc d'Angoulême, a match which the Queen preferred. The demand of the Duc d'Orléans was therefore refused, and he was mortally offended. His visits to Versailles were very infrequent, and I do not recall ever having met him in the Queen's room at the hour that the princes came there just before Mass. As he was never in his apartment at Versailles, I had not been officially presented to him. This, however, did not prevent me from being present at the suppers which he gave at the Palais Royal, which during this winter were very brilliant. I was present at the supper he gave at which was employed for the first time the beautiful silver service which he had ordered of Arthur, the great jeweller of the epoch. If I am correct in my recollection, the service appeared to me too light and too English. But this was the fashion. It was necessary that everything should be English, from our constitution to our horses and our carriages. I was often envied, because in public places I had the good fortune to evoke the exclamation, Voilà, une Anglaise! Since I have spoken of Monsieur de Lally at the moment when he became a marked man, it is well to tell the story of his origin, as well as the remarkable history of that illegitimacy from father to son, which has perhaps never been encountered in any other family. Gérard Lally, the great-grandfather of the Lally of whom I am speaking, was a poor little Irish gentleman who had taken the side of James the Second. I think that he came originally from the estate of my ancestor, Lord Dillon. The daughter of my great-great-uncle, Lord Dillon, had been seduced by this Gérard Lally, who was probably handsome and attractive. A son was born of their relations, and Lord Dillon demanded that Gérard should wed his daughter and legitimise the child. First case of bastardy. The natural son of Gérard Lally distinguished himself during the troubles and wars of James the Second, who made him a baronet, and permitted him to recruit troops on the estates of his ancestors. He accompanied James the Second to France, and died, if I am not mistaken, at Saint-Germain. Although he was never married, nevertheless he also left a natural son by a lady of Normandy, whose name I have never known. Second case of bastardy. The natural son of Sir Gérard Lally became the General Lally, who was condemned to death and executed in 1766, and whose name was rehabilitated in 1781. At seventeen years of age he entered the army and distinguished himself in all the wars of Louis XV. He accompanied Prince Charles Edward in the glorious campaign of 1745, which ended in the unfortunate defeat at Culloden in 1746. It is said that on his return to France he became very much enamoured of my grandmother. But this is certain, that he formed a very tender friendship for Mademoiselle Mary Dillon, eldest sister of my great-uncle, the Archbishop of Narbonne. Mademoiselle Mary Dillon was never married, 
and died in 1786 at chandemain en at a very advanced age. She was on bad terms for a long time with her brother, the Archbishop. This misunderstanding, caused originally by some family disagreement, was perpetuated by the troublesome interference of my grandmother, Madame de Hort, who feared the influence on the Archbishop of Madame Dillon, whom she detested. It so happened that I never saw Mademoiselle Dillon until the year before her death. She had then become reconciled with my uncle, and we frequently went to see her at Saint-Germain. But to return to Lally, and the third case of bastardy, to which the family seemed to be condemned, before General de Lally was sent to India as governor of the French possessions, he had had an intrigue amoureuse with a Comtesse de Molde, née Saluce, wife of a Flemish lord of the environs of Arras, or of Saint-Omer, and aunt of the Saluce whom we knew at Bordeaux. As a result of this liaison, he had a son whom he caused to be brought up under another name at the Jesuit College of Paris. A dramatic event was destined to have a dominant influence upon the future of this child. As I have already said, Mademoiselle Mary Dillon, who was a great friend of General de Lally, was his confidant in the matter of the intrigue with the Comtesse de Molde, and looked after this child, who was ignorant of his origin and of the name of his father. After the execution of General de Lally, an Irish officer named Drumgold was entrusted by Mademoiselle Dillon with the details of the allowance of this young boy, and went to see him. Drumgold no sooner found himself alone with the child than this lad of twelve years began to speak to him of the execution of Monsieur de Lally, which had taken place the previous day. He approved of the sentence, and to justify it, repeated all the arguments which he had heard at the Jesuit college. Drumgold, unable to remain silent upon hearing such language from the mouth of the son of the person who had just been executed, cried, Malheureux, il était ton père. At these words, young Lally fainted, and remained unconscious several hours. A severe illness followed, and it was during his convalescence that he formed the resolution to consecrate his life to the rehabilitation of the memory of his father. From this moment, all his readings, all his studies, all his thoughts tended to this end. General de Lally had recognised his son in his will. The boy took his name, and at eighteen years of age, he commenced the work of rehabilitating his father by composing pleadings and memoirs which were models of close reasoning and eloquence. During a period of twenty years, this was his sole occupation and his only thought. Having received very little money from the inheritance of his father, he lived with Mademoiselle Dillon at Saint-Germain-en-Laye, and was protected by Maréchal de Noailles and by Maréchal de Beauvau, both friends of Mademoiselle Dillon. When, in 1785, my great-uncle became reconciled with his sister, we saw at her apartment at Saint-Germain Monsieur Lally, whom I had not previously known. He was then about thirty-five years of age, and had a very handsome face, but an effeminate air which did not please me. After having pleaded before three parliaments, 
he had succeeded in gaining his cause, and had acquired a great reputation for eloquence, and a well-merited standing from the constancy with which he had carried his case to success. It would be only just to attribute a great part of the honour of his conduct to Mademoiselle Dillon, a person of distinguished spirit, of very superior character. She had gained an absolute empire over Monsieur de Lally, and in the solitude in which he lived at Saint-Germain, she was entirely devoted to his interests. She died in 1786, leaving him by her will all the property of which she was able to dispose. More than this, she had arranged that he should have the reversion of the apartment which she occupied at Saint-Germain, and which was the one given by Louis the Fourteenth to her father, when he arrived at the chateau with James the Second. She had been born there, as well as her four sisters and five brothers, of whom the youngest was the Archbishop of Narbonne. My father deeply regretted, when he returned from the islands, that she had disposed of this lodging, the cradle of the family in France. Monsieur de Lally would have shown more delicacy in not accepting among the objects which were left him many of the family souvenirs, which were without value to him, but which my father and I highly esteemed on account of their origin. End of Part 1, Chapter 8